Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, welcome to Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast, coming to you on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Public Radio, Overcast, Pocketcast, CastBox, iTunes, and many more platforms. My name is Damien B. Donnelly and I am the host and producer of this show and I am delighted that you are joining us here today for another episode of Back to Back Poetry. Today we have another five guests from around the world gathered to share their work with us. We are now on episode 13, season 3, and have just two episodes left of this season. But fear not, we will be back at the end of the year with season 4. But for now on the show, we have a librettist dealing with bucolicism, the secrets the moon tells, whispers from the earth magic, a technicolour textbook of menstrual cups and toasts, and the winner of the Virgo Flump Humour Poetry Award. So what else can you possibly need for a late Saturday afternoon or whenever it is you've tuned into this podcast other than a cup of tea, a slice of cake and a comfy poof to pop the feet on? This is Eat the Storms. Today I'm starting off the show with a poem I wrote recently about the lavender bushes in the back garden. A garden once tended to by my great-grandparents and last week while out in the garden. I was questioning how deep the roots can go when you've been adopted into its soil. This is called To Find Out What Lies Beneath the Scent of Lavender. Between my fingers I twirl a calyx from worlds, and nostrils twitch at the memory of a scent that isn't mine. Chimes ring cross-legged in the midst of a Buddhist chant, in a white room bearing no evidence of a door or the need for any exit. I was not born to the elixir of any lavender. I was watered to its oil, running early over its ease. Shown the door before I was able to identify the concept of all a room could hold. This isn't me. This scent now staining the epidermis, tracing oils over prints. Telling of individuality while I struggle to connect muscle, memory, and even attachment. Between fingers my body tells me are mine. In a garden I've trimmed back into a shape resembling familiarity without the roots of any original hold. I twirl the calyx of lavender worlds and scent explodes against the skin. I'm still trying to get beneath. And now it's time for the first of today's guests and I am delighted to say that my first guest today is a returning guest who has been on the show now twice, sharing many poems including some from her memoir The Road to Cleestorp Pier and from her blooming stunning collection published by the Hedgehog Poetry Press in 2020 Where Flora Sings, which was nominated for a Laurel Prize. Widely published in journals, online and in print, including Impspired, Blue Nib, Open Door, Flights of the Dragonfly and Drake, she is a leader of a poetry group in Nottinghamshire, while currently working on her first novel and third poetry collection. Today she is with us, sharing more poems, including some from her recent Earth Magic, published by Impspired Press. 
This is the always enchanting Margaret Royal. Hello, Damien, and thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. I'm delighted to read for you a few poems from my recent pamphlet entitled Earth Magic, which was published this last May. The first poem is a September poem, and it's called Memo to a Cheat. Dear Autumn, You didn't tell me I'd need gloves in mid-September. You're playing the deception card, trying to catch me out. So I'm warming blue fingers in pockets deep as milk churns, with that lingering smell of a school dinner fog. The purple blue reminds me of my nana's wash day blue bag, used for whitening laundry in mum's old dolly tub. The corner shop used to stock them, lined up on the top shelf, brooding like blue-tit fledglings teetering on the brink. I recall how my coat had pockets fit to swallow dreams. Fumbling deep for halfpennies, I'd find a gooey stickiness, a forgotten toffee or bullseye from one of those tall jars that flirted coyly with you. Temptation behind shop windows. If Mum miscalculated, I'd keep the change, buy two penneth of kaylai. Slurp down that sharp fizzy kick before heading home. Those were the days when autumn did what autumn should, brought Indian summer warmth in mid-September. Not this chilly nonsense. Autumn, you're a big disappointment. My second poem is from the same pamphlet, and is the August poem "Silent Seas." When landlocked, I dream only of silent seas, soft, sensual swell, sheltering beneath silken sheets, sequestered by sudden storms on spring tides. I crawl inside conch shells for comfort. Huddle in lush layers of lemon balm and sea lavender, lulled by scented lullabies into soothing sleep. Eyes averted, I dismiss the darkness of reality, swimming in peaceful coves by coral cliffs that flash pink in siren sunsets. I drown in the opalescence of mermaids' tears, lost in the mystical underworld. Neptune's kingdom calls me to explore. I immerse myself in whirlpools, weaving round brine-soaked wharfs. Feed on the lush laments of selkies singing from distant shores. Sensing the urgent pull of moon on tide, part of me always lost to the silent seas in watery sacrifice. My third poem is from the next collection I hope to publish, and it's called Brambling. It is inspired by the poetry of Ruth Stone. Brambling. All my life I've been brambling, plopping plump promises into my mouth, twirling the bitter sweetness around my tongue, eyes screwed up when the sourness kicked in. As teenagers, we would bike round gingers, its hedgerows boasting a bumper crop bushier than Grandpa's eyebrows. Once home, I'd bake us bramble pies for tea. I recall one Sunday evening, my son's bombshell, cookery next day, 
blackberry pie. Did we have any? A quick foray down Carlton Lane thankfully yielded a plentiful sufficiency, as my dad used to say. But those barbs, I have suffered their curse more often than I care to recall. Thorns ripping flesh. My first love tricked me with vain promises. Blackberry pie tomorrow? Soon? Next week? More fool me, blanking out the obvious. My first marriage hurled me into razor-sharp thickets so dense that emerging proved almost impossible. Inch by inch, I crawled out backwards before I drowned. But it takes way more than that to keep a Lincolnshire lass from brambling. My final poem is entitled Dilemma. I'm standing on the sideline, watching anonymous grief unfolding, flapping on the breeze like Nana's patched bedsheets, pastel pink flamingos, stiff-winged, feet mired in mud. I note my hesitance, my confusion, wondering if silence is better than intimate betrayal. But silence, like Chinese whispers, might destroy what remains of us, never again to stroll down memory lane giddy with passion, arms entwined through Notting Hill. Twenty-somethings on Saturday afternoons, innocent lovers in Bohemia, souls soaring, singing an uncaged bird song. My gut feeling says anonymity. Yes, way to go, my friend. That youthful liaison was simply too dangereuse. Thank you very much, Damien. That concludes my poetry for today. Once again, thank you so much for inviting me back. My next guest on the show today is a first-time visitor to Eat the Storms and I'm so delighted to welcome them to this poetry platform. To join them, we are heading over to the United States for this queer writer and artist with work upcoming in Five Points, Cincinnati Review, Anti-Heroin Cheek, The Lumiere Review and Rats Ass Review, very well known to us here with three Rats Ass fellows already on the show, including Gerald Friedman. Carlos Sevilla and Sergio A. A winner of the Virgil Flump Humour Poetry Contest for My Therapist Chez, this is The Extraordinary Koss. Hi, I'm Koss, a queer poet and artist, and I appreciate the opportunity to be included in this wonderful podcast. I used to think of poetry as a sort of container or freeze frame. But as I wrote more explicitly about loss, I came to believe that what it really lends itself to is disrupting time, traversing it, allowing us to move freely across worlds into dream time, escaping the boundaries of time and of embodiment in a sense, and in a very short span. So I'm going to read some poems about loss, followed by something lighter about job interviews. This one was recently published in the San Pedro River Review. The opt-out mother is not a weeping Mary with her mealy dead boy draped over her lap, or the sweet gay penguins with their silky mittens nestled around their chicks. The opt-out mother is more easily defined by what she is not. Her rayless shadow 
shows up first in your cornered eyeball, brimming your senses, bordering sense. She did not die, your opt-out mother, before her funeral or after, not in that waxy shell. Her voice did not cease to speak and please through crisscrossed lips. That was just a trick. Opt-out mothers are not provisional. They've been gifted a stay from the unnamed gods. From rib to crib to tomb they stay in the tomb spaces, the aches of rents not tended. You wake sometimes at three, the shadow hour, and find her next to you, her breath rising with yours. So metronomic, you might be one. You count, you count, you count again. Nearly trusted is sympathetic, what a nervous system does, and then suddenly gone. The opt-out mother is not a thing to keep or love, but a creeping, a creaking that comes and goes, mocking the night as if it might be held in some tender beak or buglet jar. She is, in fact, a door ajar. You will shamble through again. Dreams make great poetry fodder. Sometimes rolling off the pen is near complete works. This one was probably more of a nightmare, published in Spillway. Conversions. I appeared in your suicide dream. I tried to spoon you in our sleep. You were curled on the dirty cream floor, like a snail in mist, nil, too far gone to care. I wanted to tell you in your dream not to leave me, that my breath would also cease. You emerged upright in an ivory bath, paired with a musky, ape-like man, palms hard against the tiles surround, you on the short end, him on the long side, leaning, tendons stretched against glazed wall, with your ear pressed hard as a conch, whose echo a kind god might sound. Your eyes concave, silent bodies angled awkward, your back a blockade, bone tub drab. I hovered, specter-like, thick-tongued, throat jammed, mute, marking the distance between, around, with my dull eyes stuck in my head. No baptisms, cleansing, ever sex in a drained hull, only the past, the future, and the present road, a null, your back-to-back hatmare, dream witness, paralyzed. A black van parked outside, displaying its tangle of wires, its jaw propped wide open. This poem is somewhat ekphrastic, but relates to a profound personal loss. It came from photographs I shot of a frozen pond and a conversation with one who later, sadly, completed suicide. She remarked how the photos felt like John Everett Millay's Ophelia painting, uh, the one from the collection of Tate Britain in London. This piece was longer and part of a high bun published in Entropy magazine, but I recently decided to let it have its own standalone existence. We both saw Malay in muted greens and gray, trespassing the berm, piping the pond's frozen skin, as yester leaves ripple beneath a gray-green grizzale. The sky stares back through her angry veil. I see you half submerged in camera's dream. Ophelia, yeasty in the fosse, death's certain vagary cleaves petioles. Spores muted pixel after stills. If only spring could bust this monochrome. If camera could pluck its only eye. This next poem speaks to the failures of te technology to connect us or at times save us. A different kind of loss. This also disrupts time shifting between possibilities and landing in a present death dream note. 
it was also published in Spillway. A Modern Highway Death. I could be the dead dyke on the highway, frozen to pavement, stiff as a skull, its ocean drained to the bone. When no one answered their phones, the record cold night in 2014, when my car died and burned on the freeway. The world you see and don't is in flux between connections and short circuits. They all sat on their couches, fingering their phone screens, all filled with emojis, fleeting, oh my God, LOL, distractions, waiting for the next random, random thing to stir them. Ringers off, the snow forms a hull around my corpse, barely covering my skull. My silenced eyes drift into the nimbus through which the headlights glow. If you've ever worked in the corporate world or even entertained the idea, um, this poem might speak to you. It was originally published in Outlook Springs. Core Values, interview poem. She reads you a list of their core values, two word pairings, all shallow. Then comes the test and you have to pick only one, the best core value that most closely speaks to you, to your character, your being. At this point, the interview is getting personal, so personal, you could almost be talking to a friend or therapist. You might even want to sit on her lap. You choose grow or die and add, it is scary. Wrong answer. Another bombed interview over values. Maybe you have no values, yet none of the awkward word pairings made sense. They were nebulous cartoon balloons strung like a papery moon. Void candy, gob stoppers, jobs not gotten. You decide to make up your own values. You shot over the gym floor and bundle into your own entrepreneurial business methodology. Yes, you will instruct others in success. Born to lose, shitter ricochet. Must we pretend so hard? My cat farted. Allenda lamenda hibachi. Snatcho, the secret Marx brother. Day-old crotches of underwear rise out of the ashes. I'd really love a sandwich right now. My application is in the mail. Good night, sweethearts of the rich, the clever, the indescribably successful. Thanks for listening. I hope you might check out my website for news, links, and other audio files, and maybe even connect on social. Next up on the show today, we have a poet whose first pamphlet just arrived on the market and it's time to make way for it on our bookshelves. The Tricolour Textbook, published as a legitimate snack, recently arrived from Broken Sleep Books, which the author claims is about Gursky mental cups and toasts. This is a poet who's had work published in Reside, Atrium, Northern Gravy and Brunel Writer. With an MA in Creative Writing from Oxford Brooks, I am delighted to hand you over to the fascinating Wendy Allen. Hello, my name is Wendy Allen and I'm a poet and full-time MA student of Creative Writing at Oxford Brooks. I live in Staines, but I'm originally and proudly from near Liverpool. Thank you, Damien, for giving me this opportunity. I spent the past 20 years working as cabin crew for British Airways, leaving in August last year. As a result, my poems are influenced by the intimacy and the way that cabin crew talk. We would fly with different people each day, but five minutes after the briefing, you'd know most things about the other person you were working with. I love that sense of chat when you talk about the unspoken and feel the relief that you're not the only one who feels like this. I overshare and I love the fact that my poems overshare. The intimacy of conversations in the galley in the middle of the night, this oversharing and this warmth is something I find really important in my writing. Why do people take photographs of men surfing and not my orgasm as it peaks? 
We are speechless, floating on our mattress of foam off the shore. My nipples are blushed boys as they bob on the slowing wave of you. My hair advert pretty as it moves over your cock like the tide. I like the off-white of afterwards, dirty bridal stains traced on our lips. I want to stay open-mouthed, remain on this high, photographed on this invisible wave. I want to have it framed. Do I smile as your tongue turns circles into crests as I surface? This poem appeared in Northern Gravy and looks at the subject of orgasm, which is a major theme in my writing. I think of how fleeting this moment is and how majestic and massive it is. This theme is continued in my next poem, which appeared in Atrium. You wear a t-shirt with the National Rail emblem on. From Chester to Bangor, the carriages peer down on top of the wide-eyed seawall below. You trace your two fingers slow down the curve of my waist to hip bone to the sea underneath. You go down on me, your slated lips taste of waves. I am between blue and breathing. Mudlarking, which appeared in Northern Gravy, is based on one of my favourite themes. I like to consider menstruation in many ways. Menstruation is such a big part of our lives, but one I think that we've been trained to hide, but can be really beautiful. I spend too long looking at my menstrual cup and how it looks so different at times, smells so different, and is probably the most beautiful shade of red lipstick you could ever want. Mudlarking is the end of the period, the part when I don't think I'd wear a lipstick this colour, the annoying part. Mudlarking, what I looked like under the shallows. Only the dredged part of me remains. It smells like the end. This period is slow like sediment and meanders instead of flows, bleeds like shit and sticks to the depths of the shallows. This is the bottom of a coffee, a slow draining punishment, the dull lack left at the end. The lustrous first blood has gone, swimming red ribbon sleek in a costume that dyes the departing waters like a menstrual bath bomb. No cider black starburst bleeds into the clean. The clot at the bottom is dead brown, a pencil end, a stub, a dry felt tip. In Ruby Jeweled Underwear, which appears in my first pamphlet, which is due to be published shortly as a legitimate snack from Broken Sleep, I look at menstruation in a different way, considering the contents of the menstrual cup and what it could have been, but also thinking about sex and periods and how the body reacts at this time when it undergoes a sense of loss, yet an urgent sense of arousal. In ruby jewelled underwear, little wine glass pulled out of nowhere, a party trick. This magic is best practiced alone. Suction, suck me, all sounds the same pulled out. A fuck come to nothing but this empty womb. My cup fills with thick octopus ink. I use it to highlight the dates where we failed. Dressed in ruby jewelled underwear, I hold the cup up to the bedside light. Sediment sinks to its knees. A voyeur watching, your head tented underneath my dress. Cotton embossed clouds turn to red sky tonight. The light of morning, legs high in air, my glass is upright, this is porn-like. Only the old towel lets this image down, your face drinks me. Blitz to liquid, a tipped velvet cake in the toilet bowl. Dead cell smoothie dribbles down, refused entry on this monthly occasion. Feel urged to inhale the smell of my artisan waste. I hold the warm hand of tiny ridged cup, fingers interlinked with the molecules of misdame, flush clean, a smell of defrosting meat remains. The stem of the cup that cradled a could-be baby holds now a single closed tulip yet to unfold. 
I notice white flecks on bud. The cup is slick with arousal. My final poem comes from my pamphlet from Broken Sleep and is the first poem and the title poem. It celebrates the importance of friendship and how this is perhaps the most beautiful love story of all. The Tricolor textbook is set in La Rochelle, far from where we sit in this Liverpool classroom. Four years later at university, you sent me a pair of knickers, a heart stitched onto the centre. It was for Valentine's Day. You knew I wouldn't get any cards. At 40, we went to Birmingham for my birthday and visited the new library. We walked around the open balcony and took photos of each other. You looked so pretty in the dress you had picked out, stood there in front of the Hebe Teperia. A year later, we met at the Hayward Gallery to see an exhibition on Gursky. In one photograph taken in a rave, a girl wears a vest top like you used to wear. And there we are, leaving a bar near the pier, in a town by the sea, and this air is too cold for the clothes we've on, like the vest top from the photograph, but at that age who cares? Now we read French Vogue and talk about finding the ultimate Red Riding Hood lipstick. This morning the blood in my menstrual cup was the perfect shade of red. It would look beautiful on your lips. You went on holiday to La Rochelle last year and wrote on your postcard that it was just how it looked in the textbook. Another first-time guest now to eat the storms and one who I am so delighted to welcome. This is a poet and visual artist and the editor of the always excellent webzine Ink, Sweat and Tears. Her work has been translated into Polish, Ukrainian and Spanish and KFS published her book of mixed media poems, Hear What the World Told Me. Recently, Blood Axe Books published her fifth collection, the Anatomical Venus, and in 2022, Mad Hat will publish her new and selected writings. And on top of that, she is also working on her next collection called How to Construct a Witch. I am honoured to welcome to Eat the Storms, Helen Ivory. Hello, I'm Helen Ivory. I'm going to read you some poems from a chapbook, Maps of the Abandoned City, which was published by Survision in 2019. In it, I imagine a city that humans have built and then just left. I'll read the poems one after the other without introductions. In a time before maps. Long ago, when the city was an infant, it lay on its back on a big white sheet, transfixed by the tiny articulations of its own small hands. Constellations of eyes beheld from the sky. The city grew vivid, grew hearty, grew schools and grew graveyards. And when these were replete, it grew more. Straw begat sticks, then sticks begat brick. So the wolf packed its bags and decamped to the forest. The city sprouted a gate and then locked it. Even the city became lost in those days, took itself for a wander inside its own head and simply vanished. Something had to be done. The cartographer stepped from a fold in the sky. The cartographer invents herself. Thunder loped across the sky's wilderness and clouds stumbled around then fixed upon an almost shape. The cartographer feels her hands for the first time then lifts them to her face and expertly moulds her own eyes. She draws the roads that will carry her blood and the pathways to order her ribcage, then hollows out a playground for her breath. Streets of the Abandoned City The street of the Candlemaker runs slant to the river where time is detained in slight tallow bodies moored up in ragboats awaiting the tide. The street of the Illusionist was never there, or so it would have you believe. 
an empty black bag and a lap full of pitch. The street of the graveyard is lined with books, with symbols and scorings no one can decipher, and carvings of cherubs too weighty to fly. The street of the birds is a vault of locked cages, each inhabitant rendered to feather and bone. Wind blusters through keyholes to parody song. The street of the kings wears a crown of eye teeth, plucked from the jaws of anonymous dogs. The street of the dogs was scratched from the map. The Hungry Mirrors The mirrors of the abandoned city are hungry as hungry can be. At least the lakes have a belly full of sky. At least the ponds are heavy with livestock. These days it's drawn blinds, empty changing rooms and the chirruping crickets they have no ears for. Once a spider hauled itself down by a thread and they gorge on it frantically like someone lost in the desert. Ah, those starveling servants of vanity, we must pity them in their lean days, when all eternity is an empty greatcoat in the maw of an unlit corridor. Luncheon in the Abandoned City There have been no hands to wind clocks for months now, thus restaurants rely on instinct and the shadows on pavements to signal when to prepare for service. Only salt and pulses remain, so ladles spend the morning meeting them out in melancholy portions onto row upon row of poker-faced plates. At noon, cutlery goes through the motions, a mechanical dance of luncheon, gnashing salt into powder, agitating the pulses, till the gong shudders and they all fall down. Nights in the Abandoned City Dark comes home to the abandoned city and heaves off its boots by the fire. It is astonishing how weary the dark is from its work, its commute through choking towns and encampments. It talks to the flames of the things it has seen, of the still hearts it has held between finger and thumb. It unburdens itself of all human sorrow. And the fire, pretending for now it is a hearth at the centre of a church house, listens like a priest and bites its own tongue, imbues the parlour with cloying incense. In the shadow play, the dark is a plague doctor's mask, a bone saw, a gathering of spat-out teeth. Soon fire will describe a still life of eyeglasses, their tiny infinities, all their dash lenses, Zoo of the Abandoned City With the biddable and winsome gone, the zoo is a graver place of sharp eyes and fangs. The small and portable are peaked they've been deserted here, and funnel spiders have long memories. Cages were left unlatched, the keepers were not beasts after all, so everyone is free to come and go at their own leisure and well, peril. Caymans have made monkey walk a no-go zone. Inmates have balanced on their nerves like high wire acts within a wide cupola, as scrappily made effigies of themselves, held out to the rain that leans in before continuing its rounds. The Birds During the final days of those final days, the city gate was propped open for stragglers, dragging their suitcases through windy streets, civilization's chip wrappers jamming their wheels. And then a rustling of a million feathers as all the sky's birds put their shoulder to the gate and close it as if closing a tomb. A whirlwind of litter baffled about the city until a crow with one blue eye rose, gave an ushering call, and thence the assembly swooped. For six days and six nights they worked, with unstinting precision, to garner each cast-off wrapping, each scuttling drink can, each motley fragment of plastic. On the seventh day, urged on by the crow, they conjured a structure from this debris, a structure surpassing any man-made fabrication. A nest, a glorious nest, 
reaching out to the high heavens. The cartographer unmakes. It's snow that gives her the idea, leashing parks of desire lines and blotting out coffin paths. With a white paintbrush, she makes a halo of the ring road and cancels out the tower blocks and castle. And when there is no one left to remember the city, when all has turned to fireside yarns and myth, a traveller will open out some spotless pages of the map. An imagined lady fortune shines on him. Thank you. My final guest on the show today is a fascinating poet with work published in a wide range of poetry journals including avalanches in poetry, tribute anthology to Leonard Cohen, various streak pamphlets, the Pilot Press Queer Anthology of Healing and the Soho Nights Anthologies published by the Society Club Press who also published his first collection Schema Stasis. In 2021, this year, Cherry Random Records published both Fuck Pig Zeitgeist and Bucolicism. A librettist in the Andy Bell is Thorstein Queer Music Theatre Collective. Today, here to share his poetry, I give you the excellent company of Barney Ashton Bullock. Hi, Damien. Thank you ever so much for having me on the Eat the Storms podcast. I'm an avid listener and uh, I've secretly really wanted to... Um, to uh, contribute to this for a long time. Um, I've done a, a kind of a selection of works from, a, from across my uh, recently published books and uh, some of my favourite um, poems, which I, I hope you'll find of interest. The first one, well, I was lucky enough um, earlier in 2020, in May, to have uh, a pamphlet published by uh, Broken Sleep Books, and I'm very thankful to Aaron Kent and to Charlie Bayliss for that happening. Um, I just wanted to to start by by reading a short piece from uh, Cafe Caput uh, from Broken Sleep Books called And Liked It. The plasterboard and base blue asbestos panels beneath are sodden to a stout porridge and listing with their murky, sewage-infested, polluted moistness and thirsty me scrunches a fistful of the pulp and gulps at the quenching drippage. I know the taste. I bit asbestos tiles as a kid and liked it. The second poem that I'd like to read tonight is, I must admit, one of my favourites. Um, before I came up to art college in the early 90s, I was living and working in, uh, in Swanage, my hometown. Um, and it's interesting that um, Swanage is dead centre of two different shipping forecast areas um, called Portland and White. So this poem is called Portland White Interstice. It was first published by the Babel Tower Notice Board, and I'm really thankful to Richard Capener for that. And it was first read at the wonderful Cheltenham Poetry Festival on an open mic session, and I'm very thankful to Anna, Zoe and Annie for organising those tremendous evenings. This is Portland White Interstice. Dismal prom vista, a mall of crisp bag litter, ever a swirl in bluster. The endless drab emptiness compounded beneath slaked dust-slung skies and a slatternly skittish wall of braggard swash in a brackish, sour, sulfuric brine. Its flotsam phlegm tacky on a seawall, begot there in consecutive, circuitous, scouring squalls of brutish backwash that tug askance the strung seaweed's flail of skirt to expose the snoosh of limpid acne. Low tide, its enveloping, foamy, spungoid speckling, its throw of slushy hush mutates to a still marl and the child he'd called runt throws his chips into the sea and the woman he'd called bitch throws her ring into the sea, and the wife who was told that he was dead throws petals from her latest co-op bouquet 
off the pier head in memory to mix with the ashes he long since scattered of every departed part of me and all of us still rippling. I've had an enduring fascination all my life for the extreme north of the world and was lucky enough to spend a lot of my 20s in Norway um, and still get inspired by uh, landscapes um, of the of the region, particularly the tundra. I came across a, a painting online by Rockwell Kent, um, a painting called The Trapper from 1921. And this is my poetic response to it. It's called Blizzed. And um, I'm thrilled to be able to say that it's been nominated for Best of the Net um, and first appeared in The Fevers of the Mind, issue number five, Overcome. And I'm grateful to... Uh, David O'Nan for consistently um, publishing my work. Thank you very much, David. This is Blizzed. Your remnant shred of cleaved sentience. Its integral winnowing downforce, walling from pioneer skittish flakes to full sketch sophomore, from freeze-dried petrichor to bomb rush, snowfield fuzz eddying in fleeting fitful plenitudes, midst our want for more. Your intercession, awed exfoliant of tepid vacuities, your tufting micro-ministrations, mush sombre vastnesses, your crystalline emboss, deboss of serene splayed splenetics, your fluffy flux of fractious loads that witter down the last winsome aspects of icicle-throtted flora. We await our snow-capped causeway's re-emergence, we approximate the wherefores of the tufted tracks we trekked the day before within these subsumption frontiers of distal mulched horizons you've presently so presciently blurred. You, slawing radiant as a brilliance of moonbeam, as distill, as a manifest granularity smunched in desiccate compact of frenzied flurries, seemingly cemental and yet so soon. So sunlit, flailing, expiring, revealing that now's all is muchly more than the fallow, followed drear furore of bored workaday before. Renewed point and purpose to that watchful, lapping shore, your selfless blanch to melt water, and our hallowed eyes meet, its icebreak whip-crack of quench and thaw. And that's when, dear friend, we'll go rafting again, our buoyant and brusque laughter in spindrift skim on those much-missed lakes of deep azure. My next poem is called Remember, Pal, We Were Neutron Stars. I seem to remember the formative friendships and relationships um, of my early years uh, very intensely and uh, I suppose those kind of friendships are are what makes us us, you know. Um, and so this is really a tribute to um, an early and much missed friendship. It was first published in uh, Drek Season 7, Issue 3. That came out in uh, August uh, of this year, 2021. And it's just a quick shout-out to Jack... Uh, Caradoc there at, at Drek, who's uh, been immeasurably supportive and published so very many of my works uh, over the last few years. This one's for you. It's called Remember, Pal, We Were Neutron Stars. Remnant collapsed days. These swarfing hours waited in emergent, impenetrably dark midlife. Its black hole densities of remorse without recourse. We're losing all that gilded fab of our celestial age like it was all prefab, mere glistening veneer of a cankering rottenness within. Now so abloom and radiating like traffics of taffy, their stellar crystallising incoherence and estrangements, their supernova of concomitant dissonances. Angulars, then, we proudly astride bestrode, where are they now? What is life for? 
slack camber in our speculative anteroom jaw-jaw. The tickless cantos of our botch-job threnodies arraign, lively or lithesome conjecture as to any meaning or credo, our fractious asses anchored on wipe-clean leatherette. Rationed custard cream in hand, choring on about the start, middle and end of love-lust, as if we knew or had known anything but the cuffing relativity of self-serve pick-and-mix deities as insurances against ledger debits of so-called sin. But we had once lain in wonderment beneath a tolling night sky, them stars lolling in their twinkly ever-vests would constellate that one cosmic moment to burst midst the littling lilts of sour time left. Too many wound nuances bound within our parting word, Amen. And which bright young things, in a skag tent at the end of a coast path at the other end of a life, would give me a biscuit now for making them come and making out dutifully, if fitfully, all night long in search, we said, of our own solar nebula, and emergent planetary accreta, and a safe space, and an arbour in those brave new worlds we hankered for, but never found. Remember, pal, we were neutron stars. I'm going to leave you with a poem called Harrogate, which I wrote some years back and first appeared in a long out-of-print first collection called Schema Stasis, uh, which was published by the now-defunct Society Club Press, where I started reading poetry in public for the very first time some five or six years back. Um, this now appears in my latest book, um, Bucolicism, uh, which is available from Cherry Red Books through their website, Harrogate. This is a place where shop doors still have knobs and we learn to shut them tight behind us and where the nativity manger is a thing of wonder and the plaster-cast baby Jesus a sacred beauty and where the exalted recipe for a traditional simnel cake is a jovially well-guarded secret and where mulled wine and stilton in the residence of a distinguished someone is treasured with due discretion and where though one merely dabbled in the oboe once upon a long ago one has remained staunchly in support of the youth orchestra even though it musters just three members two of whom are in their forties this is a place of treasured ornamental gardens where the lonely feed ducks. This is a place where tea is taken, where maidens can still be ruined, where men are civilised in the incessant descant of their lady-wives' chatter, and where whispered rumination in tea shops in semi-formal attire is accompanied by a pianist who reputedly played in one of the top swing bands of yesterday and the joyous twinkles in such beady eyes as the cake trolleys waft briskly by really do belie the truth that so many come here to die. We are now coming to the end of today's show, which leaves me with just enough time to leave you with one final, though slightly long, poem that I wrote this week, inspired by a poetry prompt on Twitter from the exceptional Catherine Ann Cullen, who is the current poet in residence at Poetry Ireland. Her prompt this week was Dante celebrating the 700th anniversary of his death in September 1321. When I lived in Amsterdam in my early 30s, I took a train ride through Europe, accompanied by Dante's The Divine Comedy. And this poem is in memory and celebration of that train ride. 
This poem is called Training Through Europe on Fire, or That Time I Travelled Through Europe Reading Dante's Inferno. Amsterdam was the first of the nine gates at the late end of the noughties. Departure gate central, in a city sucked back from the bowels of the earth. Red lights even on damp church steps and comical demons with big calves above ground. Size is relative to statistic and the swamps were bigger than the land they'd raised. Beatrice was bright there. A brown-eyed boy who circled handicapped bodies for keys to movement. We slept under stars after, but woke to bite marks that were not ours. I boarded chilled carriage. Virgil was codenamed Ice, biblical of girth, but so much easier to swallow than the big book's parables. Even before arousal of engine, it was phallic, fascinating and faster than the tedious rides whose stubs I tried to burn after we failed to catch fire. First stop, Berlin. Second gate. Breathless. Spotless. Reckless. Demons at Bergheim, choked, cloaked in chaps and skinned alive. I wanted to toss bags of rubbish across the strata they kept too clean. Cleanliness was next to forgiveness in daylight. But Beatrice had blindfolded me. To recall only what had been and only smell the desire that was leaking out. I was on fire in beds, not hours, burning through the west of time. I left cold amid all that heat, memory of brown eyes fading along the tracks. Straight is sometimes not. Sometimes up can be the fastest road to hell. Third gate. The hostel rattled beyond the scope of the city UNESCO paid for. Demons were middle-aged and destitute at train station, tossing bile back and forth as if it were flame. Prague, a bubble of recently polished blown glass and its suburbs, separate infernos coming closer to the form just chilled. Virgil was Charles on bridge. Thunder struck his door. A mother and daughter with father lost to dementia and the cloistered closet of every hotel room across Europe saved me from scalding hammer. All we burnt was father's credit card, but he was too far gone to account and too close to the end to not know the risk. I followed cramped cobbles to a tiny church with walls held not by concrete but by names of the, all the burned souls and I wondered how did we not melt? Was that God in the curve of every single letter? Brutal it was blinding and I was beginning to miss the Bergheim till Fortgate on a border. A test of train and track in the darkness of who the fuck knew. I woke in private carriage to fireworks, welder beneath me to the side of me, burglar to the right of me, right over me, in pull-down bed and private pants. Pulled down, testing the strength of me, the desire to be free, the want to be found, a need to be fucked back to breath. Correction. I'd been fucked. The break-in in carriage four, far from carnal, far from consensual, far from concern, ice was done. We were burning brakes. Virgil, conductor, who pocketed my passport but gave my key away for a quick buck. We're saved only by the backhand of our sin. Fifth gate. Venice. Sun-burning gondolas I was too frightened to take alone. You can be found in the dark of a train or in the reflection your fires cast on the water.
Beatrice was echo in her homeland, even if mine was a brown-eyed boy in waiting. Everything I bit into tasted of his lower lip, inner thigh, red sweater, and that scent from displaced Dutch kitchen as he tossed salt into the wounded boiling water of courses we had yet to devour. I drank champagne at St. Mark, tossed fingers at pigeons who wanted to pinch the free bread I couldn't afford. Penguins smiled as they poured, Virgil as maitre d', choreographing God's bodies in tight pants, popping bubbles while the infernal sun left marks around my neck as if its lips were his lips and his lips were hungry for this flesh I was training to accept how it feels to be left alone. Later, in Florence, Firenze, as he'd said on the phone, Both of us naked because even fabric burned into the distance between us in the six, 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 the number of the beast, closer now to hell, still considering how you swallowed flesh, wondering how Hannibal slipped from goat to starling's pink skin that still stank of all those lambs you never got to say. Salvation can be a tricky thing even on a train, even in a couple, even in the face of God or greed in a gimp mask at the Berghain and a thunderstruck in Prague. Seven gate, deception, demonic in its silence, in the shadows of a mountain made into a murderer, mourning in Pompeii, ash, Caught in every crack, stuffed between every cobble. Virgil was Vesuvius and sound was stifled. Scent was missing. Nostrils opened, but everything was scorched clean. Time. Touch. Trust. Gods had roared. Religions a reckoning, who among us will offer up another cheek? Who will up and run? Eight gate, Rome, its fire dried out. Only cats prayed on streets. Gangs broke sleep outside my hotel from whose windows I could see the shine coming from underground vaults filled with gluttony at the Vatican. Lucifer plays there, I hear. In a club right below the ceiling, Michelangelo touched. The Ninth Gate, it's called. But it was all bucked out when I finally made it to the top of the longest queue I had ever seen. Below, in the bowels. And so I emerged to look once more at the stars. men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, we've reached the end of another episode of Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here today and a huge thank you to today's guests who were Koss, Wendy Allen, Margaret Royal, Helen Ivory and Barney Ashton Bullock. 
For details of all of my guests on today's show, head on over to www.eatthestorms.com, click on the podcast section, and there you will find a blog listing for every episode. This was episode 13, season 3. If you would like to join us for season four, which will be coming to you at the end of this year, then please drop me an email at eatthestorms at yahoo.com. Before I leave you today, I'm just going to give you a heads up on an event coming your way very soon at the fantastic Gloucestershire Poetry Festival. On the 16th of October at 2pm GMT, the Hedgehog Poetry Picnic takes place. A Hedgehog Poetry Press showcase featuring poets from the Hedgehog Poetry Press. These poets will be Gaynor Kane, Z.D. Dix, Nigel Kent, Helen Dimitriades, Karen Mooney, Darren J. Beanie, Patricia M. Osborne and myself, Damien B. Donnelly. Tickets are free and are now available at gloucestershirepoetryfestival.uk. Again, thank you so much to everyone for joining us here today on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Radio Public, Overcast, Pocketcast, Castbox and iTunes. We will be back with you again next week. So until then, take care, look after yourselves and of course, as always, stay bloody poetic.